Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine Podcast Radio. You're about to listen to an episode of Tech Done Different Podcast with Ted Harrington. Do you follow the pack or challenge the status quo? Join Ted as he explores how to succeed by going against conventional wisdom. You'll hear leaders in technology and security tell stories about how they achieve their success by doing things differently. Knowledge is power. Now, more than ever. CrowdSec, the collaborative and open-source cybersecurity solution. Analyze behaviors, respond to attacks, and share signals across the community for free. Let's make the Internet safer together. Learn more at CrowdSec.net. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Tech Done Different. As always, I'm your host, Ted Harrington, and with me here today is my special guest, Helen Patton. Helen is an advisory CISO currently at Cisco. She's also an author and just an all-around great voice for the community. So, Helen, thank you so much for being on the show. Hi, Ted. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we were, we were talking earlier about books, and I wanted to start by talking about your book, Navigating the Cybersecurity Career Path. So let's start there. Let's Let's dive in. Why did you write this book? Who Who's it for? Why did you want to write it? <laughs> well, first of all, I, I had hit a point in my career where I was trying to work out what my next step was after being an active CISO for a really long time. And I sort of hit this fork in the road where I was either going to do a PhD or I was going to write a book. Both of those things were on my bucket list. And I couldn't work out the logistics of continuing to be a full-time worker and do a PhD. So it led me down the book path. So why a book? It was that. But I'd been blogging for a couple of years before that about being in the security industry, what it's like to be a CISO, what it's like to try and cat herd people who don't care about security so much. And I was doing a whole bunch of mentoring. So when you're the CISO at a university, you get a lot of students, obviously, who come up and say, how do I get into security? What do I do? But I had a lot of people in the security industry who were like, I'm in security, but I've got this problem and how do I handle it? Or I'm taking on a CISO role for the first time. How do I do that? How do I build a security program? How do I do all those things? And I've been blogging about it. So the problem was they all wanted to buy me coffee to ask me questions. And there weren't enough hours in the day. And frankly, I couldn't drink that much coffee and sleep <laughs> at night. So I needed to mentor at scale. So I decided to take these topics I'd blogged about and throw it into a book. So this book is really a, a sort of an almanac of all the questions that people commonly ask when they go to a mentor, starting with how do I get into security, ending with how do I leave a legacy and everything in between. That's where the book came from. So bucket list, and I needed to do something at scale because I was, I was not extendable in my current form. <laughs> yeah. I love the way you phrase that mentor at scale. I even wrote that exact phrase down because I think that's really powerful. And it's funny how the way you described that it was you wanted to both help people, but also solve a problem you were having, which was constraint on your time. And you described it as path to, or, or maybe I heard you describe it and I misinterpreted, but it's not like you were talking about this is a path to becoming a CISO, but is that where all career paths ultimately go to become a CISO? Oh, no. No, not at all. I think one of the, I know, one of the questions that I, that I discuss in the book is a lot of people hit this decision point in their career where they're either going to become a subject matter expert and go deep in a technology 
or functional area of choice and they are not going to manage people or they go down the managing people route. And in both cases, there are different ways of doing that. There are different skill sets involved. There are different pros and cons of those decisions. And so I do talk about those because, frankly, there aren't enough management positions to go around. And there are plenty of people who are excellent at security or technology that don't want to manage people, but they feel like they have to take the management path or they're not advancing in their career. And I want to dispel the myth that you have to be managing people to be a senior whatever in your career. So no, it's not a foregone conclusion at all. Shouldn't be. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely agree with that distinction. I see it all the time in our company and, and in others as well, where you've got these people who are so talented at a certain role and they get to a point where they they think the only next step, yeah, is to manage people. And some people hate managing people. <laughs> it comes a lot of crap. Yeah, they do. And my experience has been interesting. I had a person who was on my team who was really good with people, really developed people around them, cared about them, and they thought they were a natural fit for a management position. And they took a management position and they realized they hated it because they liked helping people, but they didn't like directing people. And in that management role, they were spending a lot of time telling people what to do. And that didn't speak to who they were or what they valued. And so they came to me and said, I know I've tried this management thing, but I actually don't like it. And I'd like to do something different, please. And they went back to being a single contributor who still helped other people and helped develop staff, but wasn't directly administratively responsible for them. And that was a much better fit for that person. Yeah. So let's talk about the talent shortage in cybersecurity. So first of all, does it exist? There's some debate about whether or not there's a shortage of talent. I think there is a problem where we don't have enough people working in security and we need it. But I don't think it's because the talent doesn't exist. I think we sort of suck as hiring managers and team builders in going to the right places to find the talent we need. So I don't think there's a talent shortage. I think there is a creativity shortage in hiring managers. (laughs) Is that creativity problem in part because security job descriptions are usually ridiculous? You know, asking for like 15 years experience for entry level jobs and things like that? Yeah, I think it's a symptom of it. I think security people are sort of wired and trained to trust but verify. And that means when it comes to hiring, we're looking for evidence of someone having done the thing before we hire them. Like prove to me that you can do what you say you do and then I'll consider hiring you. And I think what we need to do is flip and say we're going to hire based on potential, not based on demonstrated experience. And if you hire based on potential, you're still looking for experience markers but not experience I've done the job before because who wants to go to a new job they've done before? But instead, I can demonstrate that I have the capabilities and the characteristics you're looking for. So if you as a hiring manager are looking for someone who's smart, curious, tenacious, communicates well, whatever, you can find that and it doesn't have to be somebody who's coming from a security role necessarily, right? They can demonstrate that in another tech role or they can demonstrate that in a business analysis role or some sort of adjacent field. And we can then train you up on the specifics of security once in that role. Now, don't get me wrong. If you need to hire someone who's top notch at encryption, you're probably going to need to have someone who's got that dedicated skill. So I think there are some of those really niche skills that we do have shortages in. But in general, when people say there's a talent shortage, they're not talking about 
techs, me's, they're talking about security generalists. And I think we're just not hiring the people for the right purposes and we're, we're losing out. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that and, and see the same condition, right? Where we've got this, it's an interesting conflict, right? We want people to get into security because we don't have enough people and then we don't do a good job of attracting them or, or vetting or filtering them. Mm-hmm. So how do we solve that? What should we be doing differently? I think there are, there are a number of efforts underway at the industry level to help with that. So there's a whole bunch of stuff going on, for example, with the Atlantic Council around how do you write a job description where you're only asking for the skills that are absolutely necessary and you've given consideration to what skills are absolutely necessary and you're not asking for more than that. So you're lowering the barrier that are really artificial, nonsensical barriers to getting a really good candidate pool. There are efforts like that underway. There are folks like us who are talking about, you know, how can you think about this differently and do things differently? So I think the conversations are happening. I think there's still some structural barriers that we need to overcome. Um, What do our recruiting talent think about job descriptions in the security space? They don't know the security profession very well. So they tend to go, I'm I'm being vastly fair and generalizing here, but they tend to go through the motions and saying, these are the things you need in a, in a high, in a job posting or a job description. And they don't often track very well with how we need things to be in the security space. I think that's some, some of it. I think we need to be going into the high schools and the middle schools and having examples there that students can see that says this is what working in security looks like and having good role models and having career counselors in high school and college directing people to consider cybersecurity as a career and not sending them off somewhere else. So I think there are there are functions outside of the immediate security space that we need to educate on security so that we can attract more people in and have more people self-select to come into the industry. But we're getting there. I am hopeful, actually. I'm, I'm seeing some positive improvement over time. Yeah, that's a really fascinating way to think about it because, yeah, if you, I mean, I think about just myself in middle school or high school, I didn't know, you know, I didn't know about this as a career. I even think about some of the people who work, for example, at our, our company, when they first find out that they're like, wait, I can hack stuff, get paid for it and not get in trouble. Like there's a job that is that. Yeah. People don't even know it until they've graduated, you know, college, sometimes even graduated from a master's program. Yeah. Yeah. So that advocacy, that that seems like a, a strong approach. Now, as you were writing this book, I, I've been asking about getting people into the field. Of course, your book is about how do you all the stages along the way. What are some of the other obstacles that people run into? Okay. So now we've successfully gotten a person or a group of people to get into security and they want to go somewhere, they run into some wall. What is that wall and how do they get around it? So there there are lots, but two I would focus on. A lot of people will come to me and say, the industry is changing so fast. The technology is changing so fast. How can I stay on top of it to a degree that is appropriate for the level of my role, right? How do I how do I know what changes are coming? How can I how can I manage for that? Do I have to keep going back to school? Do I have to keep taking boot camps? Do I have to keep getting more certifications? Those kinds of questions are actually really really common for people who are in the industry. So I talk about it that in the book in terms of yeah, I don't think you can be successful in this industry if you don't have some inherent curiosity about the industry itself, right? And that could be just going super deep on the technology you're working on, and that's perfectly fine. Or it could be a broad view of 
what's happening in the world today? What's what's happening in Russia and Ukraine at the moment? What's happening in China? What's happening in the US, Israel, those kinds of places? And then being able to sort of tie that back to the job you're doing. So some of it is stay curious, but where do you go to get that information? I think networking is huge. I think staying in contact with other people who do security is a really great way of being able to see what other people are thinking about, what's on their mind. As much as I hate to say it, social media is huge. It's certainly huge for me, but I would hold it out for others. There was a, a Twitter thread last week that sort of someone suggested that uh, actually there was a report that came out from an incident response perspective that said, actually, Twitter can sometimes give you an early indicator of IOCs than some of the more formal threat intel methods, right? So, and this was one thing that I did when I was an operational CISO is I'd get up in the morning and while I was eating breakfast, I was checking Twitter to see what the news was because my colleagues in Australia and Europe were seeing stuff before it hit the United States, which is where I was based. So, um, you know, thinking about where you can incorporate knowledge into your day without having to really explicitly carve learning time out, I think is a really important piece of that. So that's the first question. I think the other main question that comes out for folks who are in the industry is there seems it's, it's sort of a a stressful industry to be in, or at least it feels like it. And it's really hard these days to separate, is it stressful just because the whole world is stressed right now, or is it stressful uniquely? I think there are some things that are uniquely stressful about security. I think there are some things that are uniquely wonderful about security as well, by the way, but there are elements of being in security, particularly as a defender, that is more stressful, I think, or at least the causes of it are unique to the security world. So I talk about causes of security stress in the book. And again, I go back to um, take care of yourself in terms of all the normal things, sleep, diet, exercise, meditation, whatever rocks your boat in terms of taking care of yourself. But things like having a social support network of security people around you who get what you're going through, having a support group around you if you're a minority in security who get what you're going through, that you can go and sort of sense check, is this really a thing or am I just thinking incorrectly about this issue? Or if I'm thinking correctly about it, okay, how can I get ideas to deal with it? So you need that networking support community around you as well. So yeah, two things, keeping up with changes in knowledge and managing stress are two really common topics. I love that you brought up this idea of self-care and managing stress and all that, because it's one of these things that feels so like squishy and soft. And it's like, we're in this like super complicated technical feels like can i talk about my feelings you know <laughs> yes you can but it's critical right we need it you're not the first person in security a lot of people are talking about this as a challenge so why do we think that not enough people take enough care of themselves like why is there this institutional bias towards burnout and working too hard and overstressing and it takes people like you getting on a podcast to say hey Sleep, eat right, exercise, <laughs> go to bed. <laughs> I'm going to generalize again. I, I think one of the things I talk about in the book is you've really got to understand why you're doing security before you begin, while you're in it. If you're experiencing stress, going back and revisiting that question, why, why did I get in, in the industry to start with, this role to start with, this company to start with? And if the reason you got into it doesn't match the reality now that you're there or here, that's an evaluation step that you've got to take. And some people are doing that and saying, I'm gone. I'm out of here. This security thing is not what I thought it would be. 
it's I'm done. And other people are like, oh, I can change my environment to better align with my values and that will reduce my stress. So I think there's some of that. But I also in that in that section of the book say there are some traits about people in security that are common. And I talk about different personas in the security space. So for example, I talk about people who are inherently defenders. And these are folks who really sort of have a they have a mission that they believe security helps the greater good. I see a lot of people with this mindset who've come out of the military or the Peace Corps or some kind of social community group that exists to support other people. I think there are a lot of people in security that, that have this real missional approach to security. And when you ha- when you bring that to your job, you tend to overwork. You tend to put more of yourself into it than you get back because it's more than just a job for those folks. It is missional. Now, I don't think everybody in security needs to do that. I don't think everyone needs to do that all the time. I just see that that this is actually a common thing I see in security people that I don't see necessarily as much in other professions, for example. So yeah, I, I think our personality types lend itself to overwork and burnout, actually. Yeah. 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 And it seems like maybe a sense of, I don't know if perfectionism is necessarily the right word, but people are so smart. People are so smart in this field. I know. I love it. That they're like, it's almost to the to their detriment. Yes. That they'll approach something and it's like someone wants a simple like, hey, do this. And they're like, well, I have to study that for 50 hours before I can tell you <laughs> do this. It's like, no, just should I cross the street or should I not cross the street? Yeah. No, I know. It's like perfection is the enemy of the good. And and I, th- I do think there are folks, and another personality type I talk about is someone, I call it the puzzler, but these are people who really like solving problems, right? And so I see a lot of security people that they just geek out on tech. They geek out on security because they want to know how it works. They want to get to the bottom of it. They want to make it better. And to do that, they've got to go down these rabbit holes of, of hyper-focus, real intense emotional effort. And that burns people out too. So, uh, you know, okay, so let's combine. I have a, I have sort of this missional approach and I geek out on tech and I like solving problems. And all of a sudden you're never leaving the office because there is so much work to do. And then you layer on top of it, and this is where I fit in. I'm a little bit of a control freak, right? So I really believe that if you do security well, your whole organization is going to be better. Like I do see it as a business enabler. When you see security that way, it's really hard to stop doing security and knowing where your boundaries are and and knowing when to let things go, which hill to die on and when to back away. And and so I think this is one of the things that people learn as they work in security more and more is where is their boundaries? Where do they go? You know what? Yeah, it's a problem, but it's not my problem. It's not my problem today. And I'm going to sleep at night. You know, that, that kind of learning comes with time. Right. Oh, you are you are preaching to the choir with that. If security's done well, the organization's better. I see. I I peer on your bookshelf behind you, a copy of my book, which I talk about that idea exactly. <laughs> we're, we're in agreement. Uh, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's amazing to me how they're in most places they're actually seen as two different things, right? It's like security is its thing, but then there's the business, and it's no, they're they're one and the same. Yeah, it's not. I had a LinkedIn and a Twitter post this week where I'm like, we need to be thinking of security as as a value enabler and a value protection mechanism for the organization. And when you do that, what changes about the way you talk about it? So the other thing is we've got to get better at talking about our why and how security 
works with the business, not helps the business, works with the business to protect the value that they already care about. So rather than saying security is a cost center, you say security enables the business value. And if the business value is $4 billion in revenue every year, what's it worth to the business to protect $4 billion? Well, that's what you should be spending on security because security protects that value. So, you know, things like that, we need to be changing the language we use as an industry, I think. Uh, And that will also help with attracting and retaining people in the industry as well. I agree. Yeah. I've had it just explained in this really interesting way by a really smart security guy that I know. He he said it this way. He said, how a company approaches security is an actual reflection of its true values, not its stated values, but its true values. So for example, if a company says, oh, we value the customer experience or whatever, they, we value the customer, we want the customer to win, but they don't invest in protecting what matters to the customer. Well, what are they really doing? They're actually really living a different value than they're stating. Right. Yeah, which gets me into, you know, a lot of what we do, particularly in the senior levels of security, is really organisational change management much more than it is security. And you're right that aligning the security programs to values is actually more of an art than a science because what people say as are their values and what people do are often different. And if you align to what they say, but not what they do, there's going to be a mismatch. And that's where you get into the security doesn't understand the business. So you've got to be able to read the tea leaves, not the official statement, but the unofficial statement. You've got to know the business well enough to say, I know this is what you say, but this is really what you value. And I'm going to align to that. Or that doesn't match my my values. I'm going to find another company to go do security. in. It's so fascinating the way you just broke that down, because in a way, isn't that also how we evaluate relationships in our day-to-day life, right? Like our friendships and our romantic relationships and even relationships in family where, you know, we, we evaluate what do people do relative to what they say? Absolutely. And part of being, I think, a security leader is you. the role of security, another way of putting it is you are helping the organization build trust internally and also externally with the stakeholder community, right? And if you can't see what people's actual values are and you're trying to support something else, you're actually undermining trust. And that's a death knell. That's just a death knell. So yeah, organizational management 101. <laughs> I love it. I love it so much. You're <laughs> so many of these ideas I wrote about. I, I you're like preaching to the choir. But you know this. You you read my book. You wrote me a very a very nice review of it, which I so yeah. profoundly appreciate. So let's let's pivot and let's talk about that. Why why you even were in that position to be reading my book? So you're on the board, I believe, of the Cybersecurity Canon yeah. at the Ohio State University. Yeah. Can you tell us about this organization, its purpose, et cetera? Absolutely. So it actually started in Palo Alto. So Rick Howard was the CISO at Palo Alto, and he started this six or seven years ago, 2015, maybe. Rick is a huge, he's still on the committee. He is a huge reader of cybersecurity books. And he wanted to be able to offer a service to the community where people read the book, read a book about security, wrote a review about it to say, this is great, everyone should read it, or this is great, but it's just niche. If you're interested in this topic, it's a good one, but not everyone has to read it. Or run, Forrest, run. This is a really awful book. Don't waste your time. That is also a service to the community. So he created a people, a, a committee of 
folks who were security practitioners or policymakers or, or folks who were in the industry who were also interested in this, and I'm one of them. And we get together and we read books throughout the year. We write reviews. And anyone can do it, by the way. If you go to the website, there is a place if you've read a good security book, you can write your own review. You don't have to be on the committee to do it. But in that, in doing that review, a nomination comes up. Is it a Hall of Fame candidate? So every book that's reviewed goes into the canon. But is this Hall of Fame worthy? Is this a niche book? Is this a do not read book? And those reviews get published. All the books in a given year that have been nominated for a Hall of Fame are then evaluated at the end of the year and the committee votes. And once a book is nominated for the Hall of Fame, it's actually eligible to be considered for five years. So if somebody does, if they're nominated one year, they don't get an award. That may come the following year, depending on what the committee votes on. What's ended up happening over the years is there's now this whole canon of books that if you're a security practitioner or you're curious about security or you want to know more, you can go there and you can see the books that have been reviewed. You can read the reviews about why they're good, bad or other, what's in the books, and then you can choose whether you want to read the book or not. So it's really a service to the security profession primarily. We want it to be a place where if you're trying to stay abreast of issues, topics, technologies in the cybersecurity profession, this is a go-to place for you to get a to get a resource. Right now, it's all about books. We are having conversations about whether we want to go to white papers, podcasts, webinars, whatever. But right now, it's about books, and that's what it's all about. So the, the committee work continues. Yeah, love it. What, what a great service indeed, because there are so many security books, and to have them professionally reviewed essentially by others in the industry that's that's a little different than you know maybe a, even an amazon review here or there yeah and and it's meant to be a qualified review so and you can read the review and actually what you'll see sometimes a book's been reviewed more than once and one reviewer will go oh this is fabulous and the other reviewer will go meh but you give the reasons why you give the recommendation you do and the readers can read those things and evaluate for themselves but yeah it's through the lens of is this something a practitioner in the security industry should know or should read or would they get value out of it? That's what we think about. Love it. So about how many books would you say, or is this a number that you don't even have, are in the canon in a whole? I should know the answer to that and I don't. I think at the moment it's pushing about 60. And I will tell you that in recent years, there's been more and more books published and we can't get to them all. So we'd love to be able to crowdsource the review process so that we can have more books in a review state on the on the website. But I think it's about 60. And then each year an award goes, some years they've been heavier than others, but usually it's three or four books each year actually are put into the Hall of Fame. And the definition of a book in the Hall of Fame is that everybody in the security industry should read it. It's well-written. And the concepts or the topics involved in the book have legs in terms of standing the test of time. Those are really the three criteria for the Hall of Fame selection. Mm. That third part that you brought up is an interesting one. I was, I was having uh, dinner with a friend of mine yesterday who's not in security. She wrote a best-selling book about basically team performance. And she was asking, she's like, well, doesn't technology change really fast? How do you write a book? It takes you, you know, 18 months or 24 months or 36, however long. And by the time you publish it, is it out of date? And she's right. You know, that's, that's a real challenge. And, and so to write a book, to be able to, how do you keep it evergreen for, maybe it's not evergreen forever, but at least for like years or decades, that's a, that's a challenge. And to do that, you, pro, you have to talk more about principles and approaches than about specific tech. Yeah, I think you do. If there's something that's 
really particularly technical, they tend to get nominated as niche books. So again, they're in the canon, but they may not necessarily make it Hall of Fame because the industry now, as you know, is so broad that if you write an excellent book about encryption, it doesn't mean everybody in the security industry needs to read it if it's about the math of encryption, for example. So what you find is this, the things that are in the Hall of Fame end up often to be, not always, but are often geopolitical in nature. Uh, so books like Sandworm, for example, the book about Stuxnet, that, who's, and it's going to Kim Zetter's book, and I can't remember the name of it now, things like that where it is topical. It might be topical in terms of sort of a current event, but it gets tied back to industry trends, industry themes, history, politics, policy, like those kinds of books tend to be the ones that end up landing in the Hall of Fame, but not the only ones, but the, but that's a been sort of the the major category of Hall of Famers. So because of what you do with volunteering for this organization, you have a sense of sort of what's happening with the, I guess, publishing of books across security. Do you see there are areas that are maybe lesser served that anyone listening to this who's thinking about a book might want to focus on writing a book for? You know, I wish I knew the answer to that question definitively because I've, I've been bitten by the book writing bug and now I'm thinking of writing another one, but I don't know what to write it about. Right. I actually... I don't think there's a topic that I can point to. I I think there is just a lack of diversity in the voices that are talking. So I think there's an opportunity. If you if you want to write about a topic, write about the topic because we we a lot of the books that we have in the canon right now happen to be very US centric. We're trying to be more international in our thinking. But I think there's a, a place for international voices. There's a place for you know minorities to come in with their conversations around some of these things. A lot of the books have been written by people who have had the benefit of working for some pretty big organizations or startups, but there's actually not a lot in between. So if you're a, a doing security for a Midwest, mid-level company, your security experience is way different than a JP Morgan Chase or an Ohio State or a tech startup in the Valley, right? We need to hear those voices because a lot of the regulators who are making policy decisions are only hearing voices on the East and West Coast and what about in the middle? Or they're not listening to what the international implication of some of their policies are, even though they think of themselves as domestic policymakers, but we know their policies have footprints everywhere. So for example, right now, Britain has a, a draft policy out for comment. They want to license the cybersecurity profession and they want to tie that licensing to their equivalent of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which is the hacker community is like, what? Because does that mean you've got to be licensed in Great Britain in order to do bug bounties or those kinds of, so all of that kind of stuff's going on. And when you look at the literature in the industry, we're not hearing those kinds, that diversity of voice. So I, I actually would encourage anybody, if you've got a topic you want to write about it, write about it. We want to hear it. I love that. I'm so glad that was your answer. I was not leading you in any way, but I'm glad that was the answer. <laughs> I say this to people all the time, like, if you think you have a book and you do it, like just do it, just jump off and then build the airplane on the way down because the yeah. you will help people. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's so many. I, th I think that this is a struggle that I run to a lot of times when I see these really smart security people hesitate to even, you know, we're talking about a book, which is a significant commitment, but even the other lesser commitment, you know, giving a talk at DEF CON or something, we've got these brilliant people hesitate to even submit a talk 
because they're like, it's not the next O-Day that's, you know, the governments are going to, it's like, but it's knowledge that businesses need or nonprofits need or academics need. Put the knowledge out there. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the, the, the more variety of faces that people see in the industry, the more they can see themselves in the industry. So as we go back to that workforce shortage, such as it is, we need to have better representation in our industry to attract other folks into it. So yeah, get out there. Don't be shy. And one of the reasons I love being in the security community actually is that we're pretty supportive. Like I I know if you do like security Twitter, there's going to be some element that wants to tear you down, sort of goes with the territory. But in general, if you stand up in front of a, a conference and say, I'm a first time speaker, people are going to be there cheering you on. And it's one of the things I love about working in the industry. We're actually, we want to share a lot of information as much as we can, as much as we're security people. It's like, don't tell anybody anything. We we actually get by by helping one another out a lot. So I love it. I, I totally agree. I think it's one of the most supportive places I've seen. Well, Helen, you're amazing. Thank you for sharing all this time as we wrap up here. Is there any last parting wisdom or any, any last words you want to share with our audience? Ah, uh, yes, I would say take some time, take a day every quarter, whether you get given it or not, take a work day and think about why you do security or why you want to do security and arrange your environment so you can do what you want to do. But take the time to do it. If you're not intentional about it, it won't happen. So yes, do that. I love it. I love it so much. All right, Helen, you're amazing. Thank you so much for spending time here together today. For everybody listening, if you want to learn more about what Helen is up to or request to appear on the podcast yourself, just go to tedharrington.com backslash podcast, and we'll catch you next time. CrowdSec, the collaborative and open source cybersecurity solution. Analyze behaviors, respond to attacks, and share signals across the community for free. Let's make the internet safer together. Learn more at crowdsec.net. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Tech Done Different Podcast with Ted Harrington. If you learned something new and this conversation made you think, then share itspmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.